0: True or false? Practice makes perfect. Uh, False. false. Ooh. First service was a little more split. But you guys, you guys have it nailed. Yeah. It It is not just that practice makes perfect, but it is evaluated practice. It is practice with a goal. Practice with looking at, Okay, where am I right? Where am I wrong? Where am I strong? Where am I weak? Practice with a coach. We, there, there's a thing happening today that involves coaches, right? Some of you care, right? There's also a thing, okay, there's a thing happening today that kind of involves Taylor Swift, right? <laughs> you see, now, now you all care. Look at that. What is this world coming to? We got to preach revelation. Oh my goodness. No, practice alone doesn't do the job. Okay, so there was a phrase that was used by Christians for a very long time. still kind of gets thrown around, but it says that the Bible contains everything we need for faith and practice. People would talk about the act of practicing their faith. And that's not a word that we say very often, and it's, it's kind of the dumb old joke, right? But if you go to a doctor, I really don't want him to practice on me. I would like him to do the thing with excellence, please. I'm not practice. But there is this thing about when we submit to a training regimen, when we look really honestly about where we are weak and where we are strong, that gives us a direction to work on something, because here's the other thing that exists in our world, the second law of thermodynamics. And I know that this is true. Do you know how I know this is true? Because I have a three-year-old. And I clean the living room, and I go in my office to write the best sermon on Revelation anybody's ever heard, and I come back out of the office, and the living room's not clean anymore. It Devolved, and here's what we know about things that matter. Like you have to pay attention, you have to keep your eye on the ball. Things will not naturally improve on their own. You gotta like go to the gym or exercise. You don't get a body like this just by sitting on the couch, right? <laughs> okay, maybe this is how. Anyways, uh, but I digress. Back to the Bible, guys. But can you imagine what would it look like? if you had a spiritual coaching session with Jesus? Whoa. Would Jesus be an expensive coach? I don't know. But And I know, I have a rich theology of the Holy Spirit, like guiding us as Christians, but that's a different sermon for a different time. What I wanna look at today, is we are in the book of Revelation chapters two and three. And so if you got a Bible, go there. When I was preparing this message, the one piece of advice that Pastor Ben looked me in the eye and told me, he's like, Andrew, do not try to do all seven of these churches. Because, once again, you guys actually want to go watch that football game or, you know, actually have an afternoon or something like that. I don't understand. But uh, we're going to do a, like, 30,000-foot view flyover of these churches and this section of Revelation. And, and I would encourage you, this is the beginning, this is the orientation, and then you can take this and go home and study it on your own, or maybe for your devotions this week, or like one at a time, go through these books. Because as I was like, as I was like studying up on this message, I was like, I have to take this a day at a time. And I could only do one church per study session, because we're going to hit all seven. And we're going to go really hard and fast. Let's pray. We need it. Father God, Jesus, we love you. And we are here to grow. We are here to be your people. And we are here to learn from your word. Jesus, I pray that your spirit would speak to us. Jesus, I pray that you would coach us, not just today, but in our lives and in 2024, as we as a church family want to live out your mission To become the people that you want us to become. Jesus, work on us. We, We ask you to be here. We love you. Amen. Amen. Well, here we are in a series on the book of Revelation. And Revelation is a really interesting book in the Bible. Very last book in the Bible. And my wife, Jo, has made fun of me for years because when it comes to any chapter, you name it, like, you know, Hosea chapter 14, you open it up, Andrew's got something to say. Like, my mouth will start moving, and something maybe smart, maybe not, will come out. But when you come to Revelation, for years, I was like, nope, I got nothing. I'm out. I'm not touching that. That's a live wire. Because there is a lot of disagreement. I had friends in a Bible study with me and their church taught a very different view, interpretation of revelation than my church taught. And and years later, my friend told me, he was like, my mom was so confused because she was like, this Andrew kid loves Jesus and he does his homework and he shows up with his like Bible study notes filled out. But I don't know if he's saved because his revelation is just all over the map. I'm like, lady, I'm in sixth grade. Like, give me some time here. <laughs> come on. And, and we do, we get all bent out of shape. Like, there have been times where people, because of their interpretation of Revelation, this is not even a joke, there were people standing on a rooftop in white robes waiting for Jesus to come back. And that was the most awkward slumber party that that church ever had. No, like, I don't, like, we get all bent out of shape. And the thing that sells books, or the things that that people really like to talk about is looking at Revelation as a roadmap to the end of the world. And I do think there are some things in Revelation that have to do with the cosmic battle between good and evil, like duh, that's, that's in there. And we actually do know what's the end of the world, Jesus wins, you're good, you can go home now, go watch the Super Bowl, no. So, like, if we are all bent out of shape, About the big exciting questions that nobody can answer, sometimes we miss the really obvious answer. And have you ever done this before? You ask someone who had a really good marriage, okay, how do you have a really good marriage? And they didn't tell you, okay, you got to go on a vacation to Fiji in February, every single, not the thing you wanted, not the exciting answer. What'd they tell you? Listen, love be present. And then I walked away going like, I already knew that. Come on. I want something easy. How, how, do you, how do you have success in your career? Well, you show up and you do the work. And you don't be a flake. You follow through. Don't tell me that. Show me the app I can use. I want that. And what does it come to with our spiritual life? When it comes to following Jesus, what does it take? to be really good at this following Jesus thing. It takes faithfulness. It takes love. It takes obedience. And that'll sell a few less books than if I tell you, you know, which figure of politics is going to take over the world in 2025, right? But as a church, we are, at Dallas Church, we are digging into this book Because we believe that God's word shapes God's people. I believe that the the picture that God would give us of what does it look like to be a good human in Psalm chapter one is someone who meditates on God's word day and night. Someone who lives the story. Someone who goes back to and instead of getting locked up in the headlines of what one, any news organization wants you to know, we say, what does Jesus want me to know? Who's the person that God wants to shape me into? And I think that's really important because there are some ways in which the book of Revelation answers some really important questions that we've ignored because it just hasn't hit us in the same way it hit the first century. In the first century, the church was the away team when it came to life. The church was the minority the people who had a big, huge sanctuary to gather in with a stage and you know really good-looking people to stand on top of it and speak at them, that was not the church of Jesus. That was the temple of Artemis. That was the temple of the emperor. They had the light show. They had the sound system. The church, they had a dinner table. They had a living room. They had a house where they met and yeah sometimes a cave that's what someone said in the back maybe yeah and so imagine being that church and you're looking out at what everybody else has and then you read revelation chapter one where it describes the colossus jesus who is like his feet are bronze and he's he's like a statue in a temple and he's strong and he's powerful How could that hit different? Versus we look at it and we're like, eh, that's the Bible. It's supposed to be in there. There's supposed to be weird stuff about stars and lampstands and stuff like that. No, this hit them where they lived. So let's look at what does Coach Jesus have to say to the church in these towns? And the questions that we want to ask when we encounter the weird in Revelation, the stuff that we go, this has nothing to do with what my daily life is we want to ask how does that show up in the old testament because there's not a lot of new content in revelation how does it show up in the first century how does it inspire me to live today and how does it tie my story to the victory story of god and i want those questions in the backlog as we look at the churches now i have for the very first time ever normally i'm not allowed to do stuff like this but i have a chart I have a chart out there on a table that you can grab with all of, it's my little, you know, patented Andrew Bullock synthesis of the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. Because each of these churches get a little mini letter that is addressed to them with very specific word pictures that hit home for them. So Laodicea is a church that has an aqueduct system. They can get hot water, from underground springs delivered to their house, which is really cool in the first century. They can get cold water delivered from other mountain springs into their house. And so why is that the church that Jesus says, you guys gotta decide if you're hot or you're cold, but you're just lukewarm. Like it it fits them. If you look at the church in Smyrna, Jesus is talking about dead things. Jesus, you're such a downer. Why are you talking about death all the time? Well, look at the word Smyrna. What does that look like? Remember what baby Jesus got given from the wise men? He got myrrh. When he died on the cross, his body was wrapped in myrrh, and the number one export that came from Smyrna was myrrh used to wrap dead bodies. And and Jesus looks at that city and says, you will overcome death because I overcame death. You think who knows about death? Smyrna, like that's who knows. So imagine if, and these are really cheesy just from Andrew, so please do not throw any rotten fruit at me while I read these, but I'm proud of them, okay? Imagine if Jesus wrote to the church in Portland, you love your coffee, but you should trust me for your daily pick-me-up. Imagine if Jesus came to the church in Phoenix, Arizona and said, I know you love the sun and I know you need your air conditioning, but I need you to trust me to be the light of the world and to refresh you when you need it. What if Jesus said to the church of Silicon Valley, is your face in my book, right? That's bad, I know, I know, I know. But this is what he does. He writes to these very specific churches with a coaching session for them, and we can learn from it. Uh, if you want to dig really deep, there's a podcast called Bayma Discipleship. And this is my shameless plug, because I'm a hipster who was into this before it was cool. But now it's, like, blowing up all over. Like, Uversion had these guys doing the daily devotion, because they're awesome. Um, but they, like, lead tours to these places in Turkey. And they, like, go to these archaeological sites. And you can go listen. They have, like, a half-hour podcast on each of these churches. And so I'm not going to do that. You're welcome. Go listen to them if you want to, okay? Uh, But there's a very, very specific format. So each church gets the same things addressed to them. It starts with um, who Jesus is. And, And instead of just tuning this out and we look at it and go, okay, so it says, like, Jesus holds the stars and walks among the lampstands. He's the first and last came from the dead to life, has a sharp double-edged sword coming out of his mouth, eyes like a fiery furnace. And before we look at that and we say, well, that's what the Bible's supposed to say, is weird stuff like that. What John is doing is he's tying back what they need to something that's true about Jesus. And almost all of these show up in chapter one when he's describing who Jesus is, which is super cool. Revelation is a tight book. So for example... When Laodicea needs to be told that they should be faithful to Jesus, it talks about how Jesus is the one who's faithful and true. And so where do we get the strength to do the cosmic battle? Because that's the other thing that this is doing, is he's kind of pulling the curtain aside and saying, what you do matters. That's why we've got letters to the angels. This is why we've got lampstands, because this is cosmic imagery. This is about good and evil. If I showed you a picture of a blue lightsaber and a red lightsaber, you know who the bad guy is, right? It's the guy going, "Ah, ah," like that's the bad guy. And the good guy's got the blue lightsaber. And here's what I know about us, is we live in the day-to-day grind. We go to work. We interact with our neighbors. We take the garbage out to the curb. Hopefully every week. Sometimes I forget. But like, we do these things, and they're, they're, they're very earthy. Like They're primal and part of what we live in. And what John is trying to do is point this church back to what is the great big battle between good and evil. How does Jesus slay dragons? Because what they are doing and how they are faithful in the day-to-day matters. I think it's really cool that we're jumping into this right after we finished Matthew 28, where Jesus said, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. So you go make disciples. You go be my people. Like Go live this mission out in the world. And what had the disciples experienced up to that point? A Nazarene carpenter who probably had B.O. teaching them the word of God. And this is taking this very earthy experience that we live in and saying, what is the big picture? What really matters? And so who Jesus is, is the beginning of what they should do. And then Jesus has words about where they are strong. What are the good works that they're doing? They have love. And that seems to be just this pinnacle thing that really matters. Where is the love? Where is the passion for what they're doing? Some of them have endurance and faithfulness and Jesus sees it. Even if nobody else does. Even if they're not getting high fives. They're not getting texts saying I'm so glad you showed up today. They're putting their shoes on every day, going to work, being married, following Jesus. When uh, Frederick Nietzsche, who was a falafist, ph- ph- I can say that, I promise, you know, I said Nietzsche right, give that. Give me that. Um, so he was trying to describe what religion is like, and he, he said this as an insult. He said, religion is just a long obedience in the same direction. Doesn't matter. It's just a long obedience in the same direction, doing the same thing over and over again, day in, day out. So in the uh, 20th century, Pastor Eugene Peterson found that phrase. And he was reading, reading that book. And he said, You know, that is exactly what following Jesus is like. And so he wrote a book titled A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. Because what is it like to follow Jesus? It is a long obedience in the same direction, in a, in a good way, in a way that matters. And you and I know this, Like good things take time. Building the life that we want to have, it takes small, really positive acts that stack up over time. And maybe it's not the really sexy answer to the question that we want, where download this app, or invest in this company, or do this. Is like, no, save some money. Be there for your kids. Like, do the right things. Day in and day out, slowly over time. And Jesus commends his churches when they show up in ways that they're being faithful. And Thyatira, their last works, like who they are becoming, is even cooler than who they started out as. How cool would it be if if that's what Jesus would have to say about us? I know about that Andrew guy. When he stepped on the stage, he wasn't doing so good. But by the end, man, like Dallas Church. We, we got off to a slow start, but but man, who we became, the difference that we made, that'd be really cool. That's the inverse of what he says to Ephesus. Ephesus, he says, you guys are doing all the right things. You've got all the right doctrine, but you lost the heart. You lost the love. He looks at Laodicea, and he says, guys, you had a church potluck, and you forgot to invite me. If you have a church potluck, invite Jesus. Like that's, let's just call that the, the bottom end of story. Like We invite Jesus. And then he talks to two churches, Smyrna and Philadelphia, and he's got nothing bad to say about them. He looks at the churches that are experiencing extreme persecution, and he says, I see what you're going through, and he's got nothing but encouragement for them. And I I think that'll preach too. I think there's a message in there. If you are in suffering, or when life gets hard, so many times people ask the question, they say, if God is good, why do bad things happen? There's there's so many people, like this seems to be the question that people wrestle with. If God is good, why do bad things happen? And I don't have time to unpack all that Revelation would say to that, but maybe just keep your ears tuned as we're going through this book. What would this, what would Jesus have to say to these churches where life is hard? And how would he answer the question? Because later in the book, we're going to see like God's on the throne, and there are martyrs all around the throne, and they're saying, how long are you going to let this happen, God? And God's answer to them is that he's doing something. Creation is a project. The world is broken, and we are getting there. And here's what I know about projects. In order to make something good, sometimes it's got to get worse first. I was rebuilding something in the multipurpose room here at church, and Melody came with me to work, and she pokes her head in there. She goes, Dad, you made a big mess. And I'm like, well, hang on, kid. Like, I got got a work day to do. Like, I'm, I'm working on this. And I wonder if there are times where we would look at God, and we're like, this hurts in my life right now. I hate this. I don't like this. God, you made a big mess. And he says hang on, kid, I'm doing something. I'm doing something. And these churches have areas where they're weak. They have disordered love, where they've abandoned their first love. They've lost the plot. They have distorted worship. And by worship, I do not mean which songs they sang to an electric guitar on Sunday morning. I 100% do not mean that. There's, there's a pastor that I really respect who told me um, that the biggest thing his generation has to apologize to my generation for is the way that they defined worship as the music. Because worship is the day-to-day. Worship is an all-encompassing. Worship in Revelation is an all-consuming identity of allegiance. And that is not always what I mean when I'm like, and let's continue in worship on Sunday morning. But this is what it's about about the whole person, how we are giving ourselves to the forces around us. And he uses some really specific stuff. He calls back to the Old Testament. So if you got questions, you're like, okay, who is Balaam? Who is Jezebel? Who are the Nicolaitans? Um, two out of the three of those you can research. The other one, if you figure out who the Nicolaitans are, write that book and you'll, I will read it, okay? I don't know if anyone else will, but I will. But, but here's, here's the story, okay? Because this, this is going somewhere. Balaam in the Old Testament, very specific, very strange story. And And John, and and the words that Jesus would have to say to this church, and when they write down Revelation, they say, watch out for Balaam. Here's why. Balaam was this really weird wizard priest for hire thing in the Old Testament. And God's children, God's people, Israel, this nation, they were at that moment, this didn't happen very often, but they were lockstep with God. They were moving where they needed to go. They were moving and grooving, on track. And so this other guy, this king, hires this wizard, and he's like, I want you to go do spiritual warfare, curse these guys, and get them to knock it off. Because I know that the, the spiritual cosmic forces that are at play right now are stronger than I can comprehend. Good is going to beat evil. And so the king says, Balaam, go and curse these guys. So Balaam goes up to the mountain, and he, he tries to do this, like, full front spiritual darkness assault and he bounces right off him. when he opens his mouth he wants to curse Israel but he blesses them instead because the spiritual forces at play are so much bigger than he could comprehend because Israel's in lockstep with God at that moment and so what does Balaam do well he tries it a couple times Then he goes back to the king and says, I I got nothing, I can't do this. So here's what we're gonna do. We can't beat them on their own turf. So we're gonna get them to lower the defenses. We're gonna invite them to worship with us, to compromise, to buy into sexual immorality, to sacrifice their integrity for entertainment and we're going to get them to lower those defenses because we just can't do it because the spiritual backing that is on Israel right now, we can't comprehend. That story will preach because Israel takes the bait. And I wonder, like, why does does he use this story to say to the church in Pergamum to be strong in the shadow of the temple of Dionysus which is throwing Las Vegas on steroids party every weekend. Why does Jesus use that picture to encourage them to stay faithful? And what is in that for us? What does that teach us about the price of our integrity? What does that teach us about having consistent behaviors that match up with who we are called to be? And each one of these pictures, they go somewhere like that. They have something inside of them that is a lesson. And then finally, each church gets a promise to those who conquer, to the victors. And maybe they're weird pictures, but once again, you got to think, first century. He says, to the one who overcomes, to the one who conquers, to the one who stays faithful... They get to eat from the tree of life. They get white robes. They will become a pillar in the temple of God. And once again, like those are word pictures that are tied to something very important. And then here's the thing. I had no idea about this till I started digging in. All of those word pictures show up in the ending chapters of Revelation. When Jesus puts everything right, when darkness is finally beaten, this is the promise. And and the question that I have for us is have we visualized what winning looks like in our spiritual life? Do you have an idea of what that picture looks like? What is is healthy you who is saying no to temptation, who is walking in their gift set from God, making a difference in the lives of others? Have you thought about that? When, When we try to do big, important things, Discouragement and despair can set in in the grind. And having a reminder about what's really at stake can, can be really powerful. Maybe you've tried to get out of debt before, and you've like put the chart up on the fridge. Maybe you're, you're saving for something special, or maybe you were looking forward to a wedding, or a retirement, or a graduation. You circled the date on the calendar, drew the little hearts and smiley faces next to it, looking forward to something because discouragement sets in when we don't know who we are or where we're going. If you aim at nothing, you will hit it every time. And so I wonder if as a church, like, have we, have we looked at this? Have we gotten really specific about what next step we're going to work on as we are about the mission of God, or are we just showing up? Well, church, Sunday, Sunday, 9, 10, 30, I'm going. What's actually been kind of cool is I've I've been doing some discipleship groups with people where we write our little I wills, which is a statement about, okay, I read God's word. What am I going to do as an act of obedience? And what's really cool about having them written down is you can go back and look at how they stack up. And you can see just like all the victories that you've overcome, all the little steps The long obedience in the same direction. What's each of the little stepping stones as we get there? Because despair sets in in the grind. And so if Jesus were to write a letter to you, what would he say? Where would he say you're strong? Maybe we start there. Where would he say, okay, kid, you got some room to improve. Where are we weak? And then what does Jesus have in who he is that could help us with that? Because you're not enough to do it on your own. That's what we celebrate when we take communion every single week. I've heard people, I've talked to people, and they're like, I don't know if I'm good enough to take communion this week. You know the point is that we weren't good enough. And we need Jesus to bridge that gap. And so day to day, like maybe you're filling out this chart. Like maybe you're looking at it for yourself. You're like, I don't like what I see that's okay. God's doing something. And then what's the promise? Like, what's the end goal? What what aspect of victory do we need to refocus on? What is maybe something where despair has set in, or you're in the grind? And you're not even thinking about the fact that this has, what you're doing, the way that you're showing up in this situation in your life, has cosmic implications. That has to do with red lightsabers and blue lightsabers. That has to do with good versus evil. For the longest time, um, when I led the children's ministry here at Dallas Church, and I still do this when I'm in prayer huddles with people, and I don't. You've, maybe you've seen me do it, and it sounds weird. If like everything I do is weird, but but this one, this one maybe more so than usual, sounds weird if you're in a prayer huddle with me, we say amen, and then the next thing that comes out of my mouth is go, fight, win. And first service, I was like, yeah, so every every week before children's ministry, we would say, go, fight, win. And I'm not talking about, you know, fighting the kids that are frustrating in your class, right? (laughs) But what I'm talking about is that even in, like, the small acts of showing up and greeting, going bowling with somebody who's lonely, throwing Frisbee, showing someone that they matter. That's a good versus evil thing because darkness wants to destroy people's hearts. And we as a church family, like we have said, our mission is the mission of Jesus. And we're here to to build people up We're here to let the gospel storm the gates of hell and trash the place. We're here because this matters. There's a fight. Them's fighting words. And so the encouragement that I would have for us as a church is go, fight, win. Let's pray. Father God, we invite you to coach us. Jesus, I pray that you would give us hope, that you give us strength, that you would refocus us on what matters. Jesus, I pray that you would give us words of critique that show us where we need to improve. Jesus, help us take steps of obedience towards you, in your name. Amen.